Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 38th installment on the theology of the body, man and woman, he created them. The 133 talks prepared by Pope John Paul II, which he gave during the years 1979 through 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. Whoever looks to desire... Shift in the center of gravity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ limits himself to recalling the commandment, You shall not commit adultery, without evaluating the corresponding behavior of his listeners. What we have said earlier about this topic comes from another source, above all from Christ's discourse with the Pharisees, in which he appeals to the beginning. Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ omits this evaluation, or rather, he takes it for granted. What he says in the statement's second part, but I say to you, is something more than polemics against the teachers of the law or the moralist of the Torah, and it is something more than polemics in regard to the evaluation of the ethos of the New Testament. It is a direct transition to the new ethos. Christ seems to leave aside all the disputes about the ethical meaning of adultery on the level of legislation and casuistry in which the essential interpersonal relationship between husband and wife had been considerably obscured by the objective property relation and thus acquired another dimension. Christ says, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. This passage always brings to mind the old translation, has already made her an adulteress in his heart, a translation that perhaps better than the Italian translation used now expresses the fact that here we are dealing with with a purely interior and one-sided act. In this way, then, adultery committed in the heart is, in some sense, set over against adultery committed in the body. We must ask ourselves, why has the center of gravity of sin shifted? Further, what is the authentic meaning of the analogy? If, according to its basic meaning, adultery can, in fact, only be a sin committed in the body, In what sense does what man commits in his heart also deserve to be called adultery? The words with which Christ lays the foundation of the new ethos need to be, on their part, deeply rooted in anthropology. Before we respond to these questions, we will dwell a little on the expression in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, that makes in some sense the transfer or shift of the meaning of adultery from the body to the heart. It consists of words about desire. Christ speaks about concupiscence. Whoever looks to desire, that is the expression that needs to be analyzed in detail to understand the statement as a whole. Here we have to return to the analysis above, the aim of which, I would say, was to reconstruct the image of the man of concupiscence at the very beginning of history. The man about whom Christ speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, the man who looks 
to desire is without doubt the man of concupiscence, precisely for this reason, because he shares in the concupiscence of the body, he desires and looks to desire. The image of the man of concupiscence, which we reconstructed above, will help us now to interpret the desire about which Christ speaks according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. We are concerned here not only with a psychological interpretation, but at the same time with a theological interpretation. Christ speaks in the context of human experience, and at the same time in the context of the work of salvation. These two contexts, in some way, superimpose themselves on each other and interpenetrate, and this has an essential and constitutive meaning for the whole ethos of the gospel, and particularly for the content of the verb to desire or to look to desire. With these expressions, the teacher appeals first to the experience of those who were his immediate listeners, but he also appeals to the experience and conscience of human beings in every time and place. In fact, although the language of the gospel has a universal communicative power, Christ's immediate audience, whose conscience was formed by the Bible, most likely saw desire as tied to many precepts and admonitions present, above all, in the wisdom books, in which we find repeated warnings against the concupiscence of the body, as well as counsels for how to preserve oneself from it, the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition, as we know, had a particular interest in the ethics and morals of Israelite society. In these warnings and counsels found, for example, in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, verses 15 through 20, chapter 6, verses 24 through chapter 7, verse 27, chapter 9, verse 19, chapter 22, verse 14, chapter 30, verse 20, or Sirach, chapter 7, verse 19, verses 24 through 26, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, chapter 23, verses 22 through 27, chapter 25, verses 13 through 26, chapter 36, verses 21 through 25, chapter 42, verse 6, and verses 9 through 14, and even Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, chapter 9, verse 9. What strikes us immediately is a certain one-sidedness, inasmuch as the warnings are above all directed toward men. This could mean that warnings are particularly necessary for them, as for the women, it is true that in these warnings and counsels she appears more often as an occasion of sin or as a downright seducer of whom to beware. Nevertheless, one should recognize that in addition to warning men to be on guard against women and the seduction of their charm, which pulls men towards sin, see Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, chapter 6, verses 24 through 29, Sirach, chapter 26, verses 9 through 12. Proverbs and Sirach also deliver eulogies about the woman who is a perfect companion for her husband. See Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 10 and following. 
and they likewise sing the praises of the beauty and charm of a good wife who knows how to make her husband happy. A modest wife adds charm to charm, and no balance can weigh the value of a chaste soul. Like the sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so the beauty of a good wife adorns her house. Like the shining lamp on a holy lampstand, so is a beautiful face on a noble figure. Like golden pillars on silver bases, so are graceful legs and steadfast feet. A wife's grace delights her husband, and her knowledge strengthens his bones. Sirach chapter 26, verses 15 through 18. In the wisdom tradition, a frequent warning contrasts with this eulogy of the woman wife, namely, the warning against the beauty and charm of a woman who is not one's own wife, and who is thus a motive for temptation and an occasion for adultery. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 25. In Sirach chapter 9 verses 1 through 9, the same warning is expressed more earnestly. Turn away your eyes from a shapely woman, and do not look intently at beauty belonging to another. For the beauty of a woman many have perished. On account of it love burns like a fire. Sirach chapter 9 verse 8. The meaning of the wisdom text is primarily pedagogical. They teach virtue and seek to protect the moral order by pointing to the law of God and to experience in a broad sense. In addition, they excel in a particular knowledge of the human heart. We might say they develop a specific moral psychology, though without falling into psychologism. They are, in some way, close to Christ's appeal to the heart, reported by Matthew, see chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. The one cannot say that they show any tendency to transform ethos in a fundamental way. The author of these books use their knowledge of human interiority to teach morals within the limits of the ethos that prevailed in their historical period, and that was substantially confirmed by them. Koheleth, among others, brings this confirmation together with his own philosophy of human existence, which, even if it has an influence on the manner in which he formulates his warnings and counsels, does not change the fundamental structure that undergirds ethical evaluation. Such a transformation of ethos had to await the Sermon on the Mount. Nevertheless, the extremely perceptive knowledge of human psychology in the wisdom tradition was certainly not without significance for the circle of those who listened in person and immediately to this sermon. Just as in virtue of the prophetic tradition, the audience was in some sense prepared for understanding the concept of adultery correctly. So in virtue of the wisdom tradition, it was prepared for understanding the words about the concupiscent look or adultery in the heart. We shall have to return to the analysis of concupiscence in the Sermon on the Mount. And with these words, Pope John Paul II concluded his 38th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. As always in these catechesis, there's so much our Holy Father addresses, and I'm only able to highlight so many of the different aspects. It's important for us to remember where we've been in order to know where we're going. And so, 
in the first part of the Theology of the Body, Pope John Paul II is focusing on the words of Christ. And this is the second part of the first part of the Theology of the Body, Christ appealing to the human heart. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, do not even look with desire upon the other, a disordered desire, a lustful desire. Christ appeals to the human heart, not only to those who first heard him, but even to us in our day, even throughout history until he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now he appeals to our hearts through sacred scripture and through his mystical body, his bride, Mother Church, even in the person of our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, who gave us these many meditations. Whoever looks to desire, there are noble desires, wholesome desires, good desires, and there are disordered ones, a consequence of original sin, a consequence of the fall. Pope John Paul II is addressing these things so that we do not find ourselves going down the wrong path, a path that leads to destruction, but that we follow Christ Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who draws us to himself now that he has been lifted up. The most immediate context of this conference, the 38th of his 133 presentations, focuses on a shift in the center of gravity and the wisdom tradition, paradigm shift. There was one way of thinking, and now a new way of thinking. The way of thinking before the incarnation, before Christ was conceived and born by the power of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and a way of thinking which he inaugurated, which he makes possible by his grace, by his power, by his own holy example. The wisdom tradition is a reference to that part of sacred scripture, which is not the prophetic tradition, which is not the Toric or the tradition related with Moses, but it has to do with the wisdom books of sacred scripture. And the Holy Father addresses some of those in this catechesis. That's the overview of where we've been, where we're going. The nitty-gritty of it all has to do with this center of gravity, the center of gravity of sin shifted from adultery's basic meaning as a sin committed in the body to a sin committed in the heart. We're not supposed to do any of them. But before our Lord came, some were content to just not commit sins of adultery in the body, not to be promiscuous, not to be catting around, to be faithful to holy marriage, to monogamy. And now our Lord takes it to the next level. Do not even... Look with desire. Do not commit adultery in your heart. Not only not in your body, but not in your heart. Be pure of heart. Be blessed. When Pope John Paul II is having this catechesis, he points out that it's not just polemics, not just a fight for a fight's sake against the teachers of the old law. The Lord Jesus did not come to abolish the law nor the prophets. He came to fulfill, and he gives us the grace so that we can keep the law and all its parts. Not only was the Lord Jesus not being polemical against the teachers of the law, he was not being polemical against the ethos of the Old Testament. The ethos of the good Old Testament is good. You shall not commit adultery. We shouldn't. We should be faithful in marriage. This man, this woman, this husband, this wife, till death do they part in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others. The Lord does not reject what is good and true and beautiful found in the Old Testament. For Almighty God is the primary author of all of Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, and Christ himself is the fulfillment of it all, the center of sacred Scripture. When our Lord says, But I say to you, the Holy Father 
reminds us this is a new ethos, the ethos of Christ, the ethos of the gospel, an ethos rooted deeply in anthropology, anthropos, man. And Christ is a man amongst men, like us in all things but sin, to save us from our sins, like ourselves, an incarnate spirit, Christ the Lord, true God and true man. And as a man, he has a spirit, his soul, rational soul, like the rest of us. But his eternal person is an eternal spirit, one with the Father and the Spirit, the eternal Son, the eternal Word made man. So the Lord Jesus has something to say about the new ethos rooted in anthropology because not only is he the creator of man together with the Father and the Spirit, he is also the redeemer of man, redemptor homines, even as he is our teacher, teaching us to be pure of heart, teaching us what it means to be adopted sons and daughters of God Most High, brothers and sisters in him. So while it is good to not commit adultery, it's even better to not even desire to commit adultery, to not even look with a disordered desire, a lustful heart upon another. This is the new ethos which our Lord inaugurates in his Sermon on the Mount. Christ himself has spoken to us about concupiscence, about our fallen nature, about our tendency to sin, not only with our bodies, but also with our souls, with our heart. Whoever looks with desire upon the other has already committed adultery in his heart. This is to address concupiscence, that sad consequence of original sin, which we only are able to combat thanks to God's grace. John Paul II has, in his analysis, reconstructed the image of the man of concupiscence, in the earlier catechesis, numbers 26 through 33, eight of them. But he does not address the man of concupiscence only in those presentations. It seems to me the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, is addressing that sad consequence of original sin, concupiscence, in so many of his presentations, not just those with the official heading, the man of concupiscence. The man of concupiscence made his debut, if you like, at the beginning of history, because that's when the fall occurred. True enough, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all that is therein, and he saw that it was good. Man included in the divine image, male and female, the good creation. But when our first parents abused free will, concupiscence entered the world, a sad legacy, only overcome by the death and resurrection of Christ. Pope John Paul II points out for us that fallen man shares in the concupiscence of the body and has concupiscent desires and concupiscent looks to desire. By our study of the theology of the body of Pope John Paul II, we're trying to get the, the tools with which to combat this fallen nature of ours, to combat a tendency to sin, not only by God's grace, but also with our natural ability to understand. It's one thing to be a carpenter knowing how to swing a hammer. It's another thing to be an architect who designs the structure which is to be built. We need our practical experience, but also the theory. The Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, is very familiar with both. Having dealt with so many married couples throughout his many years of priestly and episcopal ministry, 
and he has his personal practice of living a chaste life. In this 38th catechesis, Pope John Paul II is highlighting the wisdom tradition as having a particular interest in the ethics and morals of Israelite society. Pope John Paul II himself was interested in ethics and morals of contemporary society, having witnessed the travesty and tragedy of the Nazi occupation and the communist occupation of his beloved Poland. Pope John Paul II used all the powers within himself and calling upon the power of Almighty God when it came to teaching what was good and what should be done and what was evil and what should not be done or should be repented. So in this way, he stands very much within the wisdom tradition himself, even as he acknowledges the wisdom tradition found in sacred scripture. Wisdom is the ability to see beyond the appearances. There is a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Wisdom, but the Holy Father here does not cite it. He cites the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Sirach, three of the many wisdom books in the Old Testament. He does not cite every line of each of those three books, nor does he cite the others, but he's giving us a flavor, a feel for how God is using human language through the inspired authors to teach us, to bring us along, to help us be a holy people. And this happens through warnings which are given in these sacred writings. If someone is crossing the street and you see an oncoming car, what do you do? You shout out, stop, watch out, look. God does that for us in sacred scripture. Watch out, look. Stop! You shall not commit adultery. You shall not look with a disordered desire, with lust upon another. Here we see the Lord Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, deepening the wisdom tradition already present before his incarnation, present because of his working together with the Father and the Spirit, inspiring the human authors to consign to writing such wonderful utterances. Not only are warnings given, warnings against sins of lust, temptations of the flesh, but also praise, praise for the nobility and wisdom and diligence of women, not only warnings against the temptations of beauty, but also rightful praise. And the knowledge that certain people have, women included, all of this found in the wisdom tradition, with which we should all become more and more familiar, recalling that sacred scripture speaks to us of Christ, and Christ speaks to us not only about the Father, but about our very selves, whom he came to save. St. Jerome reminds us that ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so, we who want to know the Lord and to know and do his will need to know his book, as it were, even though we are not a religion of the book, John Paul II reminds us, we are a religion of the Word, the Word made flesh, Christ Jesus himself, who feeds us with his very flesh and blood in the Eucharist. 
our sacred banquet, anticipating the wedding feast on high, where Christ, the bridegroom of his bride-mother church, will be all in all for those who accept his mercy in the here and now. The wisdom tradition of the Old Testament is primarily pedagogical, that is, it is a teaching tool of Almighty God. Some of the wise sayings are found in other writings, but by having them included in sacred scripture, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Sirach, and the rest, God is taking them up a notch, giving them his seal of approval, Oh, yes, these are wise sayings. Learn from them and receive my grace that you might live them. The pedagogy of the wisdom tradition is not just teaching esoteric knowledge. No, primarily it is teaching us how to live in accordance with our nature, the way God made us, teaching us virtue. And one of the virtues is chastity, a rightly ordered, a rightly exercised sexual activity sexual desires. Another of the virtues is justice to give each their due, and the husband and the wife have a reciprocal due they're able to give each other, and it is an act of injustice, adultery, for what is given does not belong to the one receiving. Justice also is present in the vows of holy marriage. I do, I do. Do you promise to be good to me in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others all the days of your life, I do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is from the evil one. We know who the father of lies is. It is Satan, it is Lucifer, it is the devil, that ancient serpent. But we know who the way, the truth, and the life is, Christ Jesus, who has taught us not only of old through the prophets and through the wisdom books, but in the fullness of time by his own very lips and his own very deeds. The Sermon on the Mount, said to be like the Lord's stump speech, if you will, how often he would speak those words, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. It is the Sermon on the Mount, which was so long awaited, that is the transformative movement between the ethos of the Old Testament and that of the New Testament, not only do not commit adultery, but do not even look with a disordered desire upon the other. Do not look with lust in your heart, lest you commit adultery in your heart. The one being observed, the one being lusted after, may not even know what is in the depths of our hearts. It's my sin, it's your sin, the way we look at others. So let us look upon each other with purity of heart and purity of intention, and let us not lead each other astray by flaunting our, our muscles or our physique, however. Let us be modest and chaste in our deportment, caring not only about our own salvation, but helping others similarly. Pope John Paul II, in making this 38th catechesis, focusing on the shift in the center of gravity in the wisdom tradition based upon the words of Christ, tells us that there is such a thing as a concupiscent look, a disordered look, and there is such a thing as adultery in the heart. And here he is one with Christ, our Lord, whose vicar he is, was, for so many blessed years in Rome. 
In this 38th Catechesis, Pope John Paul II is highlighting the wisdom tradition as having a particular interest in the ethics and morals of Israelite society. Pope John Paul II himself was interested in ethics and morals of contemporary society, having witnessed the travesty and tragedy of the Nazi occupation and the communist occupation of his beloved Poland. It is for these reasons, as well as the commission he received from Christ to confirm the brethren in the faith, that he spoke these many conferences, 133 presentations on the theology of the body. Let us thank God for the Holy Father and pray that he is forever in the divine embrace on high. Until next time, God bless you.